It's good to welcome you here this morning. Thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. Let's say a couple of words of thanks. First of all, thank you for all of you who participated in Pastor Appreciation, had kind words to say or shared some gifts or gave 250 candy bars. That was a I'm still trying to get rid of all those, Cody, but uh, I'm working on it. So thank you for all of you who uh, appreciated myself or the rest of the staff. We appreciate you and thank you for that. Also, I think Kathy already mentioned it, but I want to also thank all of you who participated in Harvest Fest yesterday. Kay and I were actually uh, up north visiting with uh, Ross and Stacy and the grandkids, but we received quite a few updates on how the day was going and obviously it was a great a great day and a great success and uh, you know this is a I think the facility uh, lended itself very well uh, to the activities of the day so that was wonderful also along those lines on the building because of the the warehouse out there it's we received a truckload of a carpet uh, this week I shared with you that State of California, City of LA was going to pay for a truck to bring uh, a bunch of carpet squares up to us. And those arrived on Monday, and they are sitting out there in the warehouse, Lord willing. Hopefully they for sure will be used on these, on these classrooms. And once we get into it, we'll see beyond that, because they have, still have uh, about, I don't know, 10 trucks. And so if you need some carpet, let me know. I can hook you up. Okay, Glenn. Yeah, you, you and I, Glenn, man, we never saw something that people were giving away, but what uh, we could use it. Okay, good. So uh, thank you again. As far as the building goes, there's nothing really new to report. We're waiting for a uh, planning and zoning meeting this this month to... Uh, discuss change of the zoning on the Burger Den property. We don't see any problem with that. If that goes through, then the following month we'll meet with city council. Then that we see no problem with that. And then uh, be ready to close on that by the end of next month. We're still waiting. Absolutely, we're still waiting on some, uh, some uh, concept uh, pictures uh, to share with you from the architect. He, they're working on getting those. Uh, preliminary ideas and drawings to us so we will get those out to you hopefully in the next week or so we'll have something to to show you a little bit more so that's do you have any questions regarding the the building or the property or uh, the progress on that okay very good uh, we're hopefully this week perhaps start yet one more uh, portable a building out here and then that should just about be it for this for this fall today's uh, subject draws my mind towards delicate matters and delicate issues as I thought about this message I thought about you know what's the most delicate thing that I really ever had to handle now, there have been some delicate issues. We'll get to that. But as far as delicate objects, I think probably a baby. And I still am cuddling a very newborn baby. I'm very, very careful. And like I'm going to break them if I'm just not extremely, extremely cautious. 
But after watching the, the way the nurses in the delivery room handled Ross after he was born, I realized they are a lot tougher than what I would probably think. It seemed like they were twirling him around. It seemed like he was almost a, a rag doll, there, the way they handled him. I know they were very careful. They were very professional. But I, I was, would be very much afraid of breaking them if I handled them in that way. I know they were, as I said, I know they were being professional. It's just they're, they're a lot more indestructible, perhaps, than, than I would have ever considered. But then when you think about what a baby goes through to get to that point, uh, they've already, that's already been quite an ordeal. And as I said, what my mind really is looking for in this is what are some delicate issues that I've had to deal with in life, especially as a Christian minister. And by far and away, the thought, the issue for me that is most difficult is the one we're looking at today, where Paul is going to talk about, about divorce and remarriage. And I, I want to handle it delicately, and I want to handle it carefully, because I, I don't want people to go away feeling as if there is a no hope or feeling as if there's, they cannot be forgiven. For years, the church unintentionally almost had the idea that, or we, we let the idea out there that if you were divorced and remarried, that was the unpardonable sin. And nothing could be further from the truth. All sins can be forgiven. All sin can be forgiven. Uh, even when, when Jesus said, that to divorce and remarry uh, was, uh, was adultery. Adultery can be forgiven. So, uh, but uh, there was a misconception for, for many years. Today, we're going to try to uh, shed a little bit of light on that subject. I'm not apologizing for the word of God today, but at the same time, I'm aware of my own inadequacies. So as we get started and try to handle this issue in a proper way and, and try to handle it carefully, I'm going to have Jason pull up a clip. I, just, I changed my mind, Jason. We'll go ahead and share that one by way of getting started. I talked to my, uh, my daughter, who is a professional counselor. I spoke with her several, uh, several times this week regarding this issue, talked to her about about how much the issue of divorce and remarriage comes up and what and how that winds up affecting so many so many people and how much that enters into into her counseling load are we are we good with that okay good let's go ahead and, and roll roll that so first I'm here with my, with my daughter, daughter Megan, Megan Borner. Borner. She, she has has born Borner Christian, Christian counseling, counseling and Borner, Borner counseling, counseling services, services. And I just, just ask Megan, Megan, I'll, I'll ask, ask you, you, Megan, what percentage of the counseling that you do is related to is related to marriage and divorce and all that all that goes with that? Well, my first inclination was it's got to be higher than fifty percent at least, and then as I started to think about it, almost every situation, other than maybe twenty five percent, has to do with. Um, marriage issues, parenting issues, I mean, divorce issues, and that kind of stuff. The other 25%, I would say, would be 
um, you know, crisis stuff that happens. Okay, so when uh, when someone comes to you feel trapped in a marriage they desperately want out of you provide them Christian counseling what do you say at that point you know one of the first things I try to do is just listen to where they're at and how they're feeling and um, validate I feel like it's really unsuccessful when you when I immediately just say well that's too bad good luck and you, you have to stay in it that's what God calls you to do so I try to listen to them, I try to validate it, and as a Christian, when Christians are coming to me in those positions, they already have it in their heart, they know what God says about marriage, and so the ultimate goal is to help them work in a way that is pointing them back to what God has called them to do, because that's what's going to be best for them in the long run. And pray with them, or um, help them process, encourage them, and... Uh, try to give them some skills to be able to navigate how to continue the marriage and to make the marriage better. Okay, so today a little bit how to continue in that marriage, how to maybe make that marriage better, and in particular God's instructions on marriage. And number one, God's instruction on marriage, principle number one is remain in your marriage or be reconciled. We were excited to, to see uh, Handsome Rob here today and hear his story earlier about the reconciliation between he and, and uh, Alyssa. And so that, that's kind of a living example uh, of how, this, how God wants it to be able to work for us. Is first of all, remain married or else remain unmarried. Or remain in your marriage or be reconciled. The biblical position on marriage... God's plan for marriage is that marriage is permanent. Our, our vows include for better or for worse. Either one. Almost everybody feels like, not almost everybody, everybody who gets married and they say the vows for better, for worse, they're absolutely planning on it being for better. They are not planning on the for worse part. That's... That's just something they say, something we say, without really thinking that that would apply to our situation. For better, for worse, until death do us part. Now we enter in and thinking, hey, okay, that's how I want to do it. And there are secular vows uh, I hear out there now that uh, they will add as long as we love each other. But this design of being married until death do us part was not just given to Christians. It was not just given to Jews, but it is for all of mankind. We're designed to become one flesh and to be married until death do us part according to Jesus, the one who created us in the first place. Matthew 19 verse 3 some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. 
So they're no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. In Malachi 2.16, God says through the prophet, I hate divorce. Not the divorced person, but rather divorce and what it causes. But God does permit divorce. In fact, let's go to 1 Corinthians. In unbearable circumstances, God does permit divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So God does allow a provision for divorce, but it is on the condition that they either remain single or they are reconciled. But God can forgive, yes, yes, yes. When that, when that ideal principle, when that ideal does not happen, God can forgive. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he is very forgiving. He is filled with compassion and mercy and grace, and he does forgive. But if we're going to say, I'm not going to obey God, because I know that he will forgive me anyway. I'm going to disobey and then get remarried and then ask for forgiveness. And God will forgive. He has to forgive me because of his nature. If we do that, now I'm not suggesting we do that, but if we do that, we can be forgiven, but we will not escape the consequences, the pain, the loss, the suffering, and the suffering even of innocent lives besides our own. Jesus says Moses, acting on God's authority, granted a provision for divorce. And he said, because of your hard hearts. Pharaoh is our best example of a hardened heart and what that leads to. Ten plagues, the last one costing him his oldest son's life. Now, infidelity on the part of either mate breaks the marriage bond. And from what I can see, it allows for the possibility of remarriage without committing adultery. Ray Steadman said, divorce is not permitted on any other grounds. And God expects Christians above all, and, and God expects all human beings to, to live at this standard. But he especially expects us Christians to, to obey what he has to say along this line. Therefore, the word of the apostle here clearly is, work out your problems within marriage. Either that, or if you cannot conceivably do so, and a divorce occurs, then remain single. He says, I think that is crystal clear. God did not design marriage to be a beautiful and happy, necessarily, right from the very beginning. God did not design it to be beautiful and happy, necessarily, he says, very few marriages are. 
And I contend that those marriages that are, they write books, and the rest of us buy those books and, and try to learn from and try to, try to uh, duplicate that, although not with near the success. He goes on to give kind of an interesting little picture here, and you may not like it, but it makes a lot of sense to me. He says, God designed marriage as a kind of locked room into which he thrusts a couple who think they know each other very well. He turns the key in the lock, throws the key away, and says, now get to know each other regardless of what happens. That is what marriage is for. It is to provide an unbreakable bond, a security within which you work out the difficulties that may arise. Therefore, the modern view of divorce as a kind of escape lever that you pull when you do not like the way things are going is absolutely contrary to the scriptures and to the teaching of God. Now, you may not like it, but I really thought that idea of being locked in a room with this individual is kind of appropriate and speaks to a lot of our circumstances. So Paul is saying, so if you are married, remain married. If you can't, you can separate or even divorce, but remain single. Now, sometimes a separation can be very healthy for a troubled relationship if it is done right. If your relationship gets to the point where one or both of you decide to separate, usually one makes it comes to that decision. It is important at that point that you remain separated for oftentimes, I will say, for up to several months. After one or two months, things will start to get better and the couple really want to get back together in a good way. But if they rush it, they're right back where they started before they know it. It can take six months of counseling and soul searching and dating to get at the issues that have caused the problem to begin with. It can work, but it takes more discipline than most people will exert. Our hardened hearts want it, and we want it our way, and we want it right now. So number one, Scripture says remain in your marriage or be reconciled. Number two, number two, remain married even if you're married to a non-believer. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, and I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer... And she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now this one I've seen work on multiple times. A believer married to a non-believer. I had a friend, a Christian friend a number of years ago. She prayed for her non-believing husband. She prayed that God would give her a believing husband. She wanted a believer to be married to a believer so that they could serve the Lord together. Obviously, she was a believer when they got married, wasn't really walking with the Lord. Then after they got married, her heart was drawn more to the Lord, but she was married to a non-believer. And so she prayed for this, and she talked about it, and she prayed about it, and she cried for it. 
what was the sad part about it is almost to the day that her husband received the Lord, and now all of a sudden she has a believing husband, almost to that day she sought a divorce. as a hard heart. If you are a Christian married to a non-believer, you are to remain in that marriage. Your family is sanctified through you. Not saved, not salvation, but sanctified. They're set apart, they're holy. You have in that family, in that house, where there is a believer, the Holy Spirit of God living in you and in that house. There is a Christian influence that is not present in the world to the same degree. Without you, that home, it say, he says in the second part of verse 14, otherwise your children would be unclean. Otherwise your children would be unclean. They would, without your presence there, your children are not sanctified. They don't have the same chance to come to know the Lord and have a relationship with the Lord as they would with you there. I know of wives who have prayed for their unbelieving husbands for most, nearly their entire life. And some, even very near the end of their life, received the Lord and changed and were born again and, and became different people. Anita Johnson and Virgil Johnson and others come to mind. Now we should not marry a non-believer in the first place, we believers. But once you find yourself in that situation, locked in the room, so to speak, we're to make the most of it. We're to remain. And so, number two, remain married even to the non-believer. A, the non-believer is sanctified, and B, the children are sanctified. Now, if the non-believer doesn't want to remain married, if the non-believer can't take being second in the spouse's life. In other words, if you're a Christian, Jesus is first in your life. And although you try to make your mate feel as if they are first, they can't take the place of Jesus in that relationship. And so, so sometimes if the non-believer says, hey, I'm out of here, they're, they're free to leave, of course. They're free to leave. And Paul goes on to say that in that case, in that situation, the believer is not bound. I take that to mean that the believer would be free to remarry. Some are thinking, oh, hey, if I uh, play my cards right, I can drive him or her off. Then I'd be free to remarry. Wouldn't advise that. God has called us to live in peace. Not fighting or quarreling or manipulating or nagging, but in peace. And Paul says, how do you know? Maybe through your staying and through your influence, your spouse will be saved. Number three, remain in and retain the position to which God called you. Remain in and retain the position in which God called you. Down verse 17 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? 
he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. And similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men, brothers. Each man, is re as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Ray Steadman says this is a very insightful passage. Paul is dealing here with the common problem of slavery in that day, and yet what he says is interesting. Basically what he says is, to be a slave or to be free is not the overriding consideration of life. It is what you are inside that counts. Now Paul is not denying the possibility that God may so arrange things that an opportunity for freedom is given. If so, take it, he says. Basically, it is a gift of God. Christianity, though, though it is revolutionary, it is not designed to be radically so. It is not a violent overthrow of systems of the past, but it is clear that it is, in practice, designed to free one from within. So even if you were a slave and you were, did not receive your freedom, when you receive Christ, you receive a freedom from within. This is what the apostle is saying. So if you're in a situation that is difficult to handle and hard to bear, remember that that is only external. It is only temporary and passing. And you can be free in Christ in a most beautiful and effective and influential way. So Paul closes with verse 24. Brothers, each man is responsible to God. Remain in the situation God called him. So he's talking about marriage. He kind of gives us this this metaphor of, of being a slave. This is how this fits. The most important thing in life is not being a slave or being free. Many of the people in Corinth would have been slaves. But the most important consideration, but the most important thing in life, even to a slave, was not his freedom. The most important thing is remain in the situation God called you. Remain in the room with the door locked. All of your life, God has put opportunities and choices in your life, in your path. He put you here so you might have a relationship with him. Specifically brought circumstances in your life specifically for that purpose. To grow and nurture your relationship with him. And then he's continually brought people and choices and opportunities in your path, even marriage, even your spouse. Ray Stedman goes on to say that God has worked through your choices, not to control you so that you had to do something, but to allow you free choice and yet work it out. Therefore, you are where God wants you to be. Don't fight it, Paul says. Stay in the place where God has assigned you. If he gives you an opportunity to improve it, if he gives you freedom, take it. But realize that 
if, even if you are free, you're a slave to Christ. If you are a slave, you are free in Christ. And the whole goal there, the whole the reason for the choices that he has presented to you is so that you might have, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.9, fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the whole purpose of every situation we find ourselves in is to increase and help us grow in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And being locked in that room with a particular individual is one way that that is worked out. Let's pray. Father, when we got married, we had all kinds of expectations, and a lot of them are not exactly what we talked about here today. But Father, I thank you that you knew what you were doing. You knew what you were doing as you put opportunities in my path, as you put opportunities in the path of each one here today. Father, we have made a lot of mistakes in our time. We've sinned. We ask forgiveness. And Lord, we know that you are gracious and kind and merciful and forgiving and that you will forgive us and that you will continue to work in our lives to bring us into a richer, fuller, deeper relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. Be that as it may with our spouse, be that as it may in our workplace, be that as it may even in our families. The ultimate objective is that it would be deeper and richer relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we yield ourselves to that, and we ask, Father, that within all of the circumstances, all of the opportunities, all of the, all of the roadblocks, all of the closed doors, that we would recognize this is there to lead me into a deeper, richer, fuller relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I gladly accept that. I gladly accept that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the apostles. Thank you for the word that you preserved for us for these 2,000 and 4,000, 3,500 years. Thank you, Father, that it's just as real today as it was when you created us back there in the beginning that the two would become one flesh. It's not good for man to be alone. You created woman and brought us together. Lord, we thank you. We appreciate that. Lord, we yield ourselves to your will. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Is that how it worked out? That's how it's supposed to work out. All right, thank you very much. You have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for being here.